All right, hey everybody. Um, I am Scott Johnson. Thanks for coming to the library. It's a very intimidating room. Theology all around me. Um, we're going to do two things just to start, which is I'm going to read a biblical text and then I'm going to play you a song. Okay? So this is from Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered right. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when, you come back, when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. I'm going to play you a song. I hope you like rock and roll. <laughs>
So there's a little bit of a coda to that song, which I'm not going to play uh, for you just to keep moving on. I hope you like that. I really like that song a lot. So um, I know that it might not be your cup of tea, but all right. For a number of reasons, this song to me is notable. Uh, it's the title track from Jack White's second solo album from 2014. Jack White is, of course, uh, one of the two members of the now broken up of White Stripes a much lauded and Grammy-winning band, uh, who many of you have heard, even if you don't know it. Uh, typically for Jack White, it is a virtuoso guitar performance. I couldn't resist letting you have the solo as well, even though there were no lyrics. Yeah, but you did. Yeah. Uh, and he's known for his edgy, yet traditionalist uh, blues style. And this song is in some ways the epitome, I think, of that style that he's cultivated over the years. The lyrics are opaque, uh, but profound and multivalent. There are multiple ways to read them. I will not attempt to analyze the whole song, and I don't pretend to understand what it all means. I'm not going to go into why does he address God as she and other things like that. I'm not going not to go there. I would just like to concentrate on the third stanza, in which White uses the word Lazaretto from the title of the song and album, and which serves as the title of my talk today. First, a basic definition. A lazaretto is a quarantine hospital or a quarantine island, an isolation zone for people with infectious diseases, especially leprosy or plague. White writes in the third stanza, just to repeat it, they threw me down in a lazaretto, born rotten, bored rotten, making models of people I used to know out of coffee and cotton. All of my illegitimate kids have begotten uh, thrown down to the wolves, made feral for nothing, quarantined on the Isle of Man, quarantined on the Isle of Man, and I'm trying to escape any way that I can. Oh, any way that I can. Oh, it's a lot better when he sings it, but you know, <laughs> just just for clarity. <laughs> um, like all the rest of the lyrics, the stanza can be interpreted in multiple ways. I don't pretend to get all of it, just for the record. Fortunately, however, we have some insight into what White was thinking when he wrote these specific lines from an interview he did with NPR at the time the album was released. So this is the third page of your handout. Uh, the interviewer from NPR asks, um, or says, this, this song takes a dark turn, talking about being quarantined on the Isle of Man. Trying to escape any way that I can, I think, is the rhyme. I wanted to talk about what a lazaretto is, they threw me down into the uh, lazaretto, bored rotten. And White answers, My sort of fantasy that I have is, I wish that some other forces, some powers that be, would push me into this scenario for a month and lock me somewhere, instead of me doing it to myself all the time. I'm always imposing restrictions on myself. And so I guess my fantasy is, it would be so nice to be in a quarantine hospital, but not to die from it, just to know that I had to stay here for two months and I can't do anything else. That's why I named the album Lazaretto. Whenever I had a lot of problems going on and they're piling up on each other, I used to think or say out loud to someone, well, God, I wish I le at least my leg was broken. At least then I'd know what the problem was. You could say, okay, well, my leg's broken. I can't walk. I have to wait six weeks now. Done. But all the other kind of, kinds of problems in life, they can be vague and they're unsolvable. And you can't get your head around them, and they're imposed by these ridiculous things. 
not problems you want to have. They're not good problems. So that's why I guess that fan that fantasy comes from me wanting to be in the Marine Corps or in prison or something. Something where something something where someone else told me that I have to be in the spot and I can't leave. That would be a nice thing for me. You do get an astonishing amount of thing of stuff done. White responds. It's self-imposed though. It's self-imposed. That's the difference. In the course of this interview, uh, White mixes two ideas for the Lazaretto. He wants restrictions on his art so that he's forced to be creative without the distractions of too many options or too much technology in the studio or whatever. It's an understandable, interesting uh, interpretation. But he also offers a more profound reading with insight into his soul and his feelings about his own actions. He wants someone to lock him up in a prison or a hospital or even to be physically injured so that he won't be able to do bad things. He wants an external force to keep him from, as he calls them, bad problems, not problems you want to have. At the risk of over-interpreting the song based on the author's biography, it may be worth noting that in 2011, prior to the recording of the album, White and his wife of six years divorced, and she was awarded custody of their two children, though only after an ugly battle in court. I don't want to read in too much, and the details of his life are, I think, beside the point here. The song exemplifies his own felt need for restraint on his actions, that he is not fully in control of himself, and that his problems are compounded again and again by forces both external and internal. This image has been very useful for me because I have at many times felt the same thing as a Christian. My own story is probably not different from some of your own. I was raised in a very Christian home and my first 10 years of life were rather protected and church and faith were regular parts of my upbringing. In my teens, I became ardent in faith, was a student leader of Christian groups in high school and was very consciously a good guy in college. Even though I was in rock bands throughout high school and college, I know, hard to believe, <laughs> uh, I was very intentional about my friends, who I hung out with, what activities I engaged in, who I dated. My wife, Carol, is the jewel in my crown from this time of my life. Uh, we met through church and the campus ministry we were a part of. She's the best decision I ever made, truly. My 20s were a blissful yet intense time of early marriage, graduate school, and our first child. Largely, trends in faith continued. Though little did I know, I was just biding time, resting on previous laurels. In my 30s, something went terribly wrong. I got hit by the proverbial Mack truck. Having achieved so much in life, according to normal standards, and having largely kept my nose clean through my first 30 years, which is no small feat, I went directly and fully off the rails. This is not confession time, and I don't need to go into the details. I imagine that the outworkings of my rebellion at heart are not that different from other sins we have all committed. Though I have no desire to relive them or recount them for you now. Let's just say I wasn't expecting for sin to confront me so directly, so imposingly, or shake me so much. As I prayed about my different failures happening over time and in various manners and circumstances and talked about them with my wife and with trusted friends and spiritual mentors, I came to the realization that I depended too heavily on my own assumptions about my moral progress. In reality, I had not made moral progress at all and was indeed back at square one. But as I proceeded through a long season of repentance and self-examination over the past 10 years, I'm now 40, 
you know, life's over, right? <laughs> um, just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Just starting, right? Um, during this long season of repentance and self-examination, I started worrying that moral progress may not be what it's all about. That realization, indeed, has shaken me much more than the sins themselves and their repercussions. I began to think I had truly been looking in the wrong place for signs of spiritual health. In the midst of all this, in my mid-30s, I came across a sermon by St. Augustine, or Augustine, on the story of the Good Samaritan, the parable from Luke, which I read at the beginning of this talk. In this sermon, written in Latin around AD 400, Augustine interprets the Good Samaritan parable in a very unusual way. So unusual, in fact, that over Christian history, he has been severely criticized for his interpretation. A mere Google search for Augustine Good Samaritan, try it, will turn up numerous angry sermons by modern preachers, representing vehement rebuttals against Augustine's take. But let's give it a chance, shall we? It is, after all, St. Augustine. His take is effectively allegorical. That is, he does not interpret the parable as an ethical command to look out for your neighbor. We ourselves are not meant to be the Good Samaritan. No, no, not at all. We are, by contrast, the traveler in the ditch. We are half dead, having been beaten to a pulp by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and are certainly left to die. The priest and the Levite are worldly success and moral uprightness, who pass by without helping because they want nothing to do with a man who has been reduced to this extreme pitiable state. We have nothing to offer the priest and Levite. We are, we are an embarrassment to them. The Good Samaritan is God himself in the person of his son, Jesus. This most unexpected and unhoped for savior pulls us up from the ditch, cleans and binds our wounds and takes us to the inn. He takes us, in fact, to the Lazaretto. He tells the innkeeper to keep us and to see to our recovery. The innkeeper is, for Augustine, the Holy Spirit, working through the church. He imagines this recovery will take a long time and will be costly. He gives the innkeeper two coins, signifying for Augustine the two sacraments that are the divinely instituted remedies for the soul of the church. Most importantly for Augustine, the Good Samaritan doesn't expect the traveler to recover before he returns. This near-dead traveler will be recovering in the Lazaretto for the foreseeable future. Indeed, on this allegorical interpretation, until the Lord Jesus returns to take us home to be with him forever. For me, speaking personally, I find Augustine's interpretation to be radically freeing. Some will immediately call me defeatist and point to passages in scripture which suggest we are meant to fight the good fight to live triumphantly, to achieve our best life now, as they say, through the, revict through the victorious Christ. However, for many of us, that is simply not the experience of Christian faith. As soon as we feel we have achieved a plateau of moral fortitude, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire to destroy us, and sometimes we are well and truly destroyed. I have found myself at times wondering whether life is worth living, giving my own sins staring me in the face. Why am I here if this is what I do, how I act, what I think? Is there any nobility left in my life? I'm not defeatist, I am defeated. To these existential lost in the cosmos questions, a single point from this parable speaks to me as profoundly, I think, as anything in my life. 
The traveler himself has no agency in his recovery. He cannot pull himself out of the ditch. Once he is pulled out even, he cannot clean and bind his own wounds, nor see to his own slow return to wholeness if it ever arrives. The good Samaritan does not give the coins to, to the traveler and say, use these if you need them. He gives them to the innkeeper, the warden of the lazaretto, and says, keep this man here and don't let him leave. I'll make it worth your while to do so. Though I am a layman and do not wear a collar, I will nonetheless presume to preach for a moment. This is, to me, uh, the principle of all principles in the Christian life. God does not deal with us on the basis of our actions. Addressing communities that were alternatively proud of their moral uprightness and also often unconsciously in the midst of self-destruction, the Apostle Paul writes, for example, in Galatians 3.2, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And further in Romans 11.6, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. A full uh, exposition of this theme would honestly take months to explore in depth, and yes, there are many nuances, I'm aware. I'm a, I'm a scholar, I'm all about the nuance, yes. <laughs> um, but let me just assert that I'm not alone in expressing this fundamental statement that rings clearly throughout the Bible. When it comes to the matter of life and death, God does not deal with us on the basis of our actions, good or bad. He does not restore us to health, that is, save us, because of any moral progress we may have achieved. And the reverse is also true, thanks be to God. God does not refuse to restore us to health because we have sinned. He finds us in the ditch, mortally wounded, abased, robbed, destroyed, by forces both external and internal, on our way to certain death. And he extends infinite grace to the one who is worthless, who in the eyes of the world who has who in the eyes of the world has achieved nothing or who having achieved something has lost it utterly and is thus doubly ashamed at root this is only possible because he is good because he is good he intentionally retrieves us and heals us and he pays us pays for our recovery out of his own pocket for christians that payment is the blood on the cross uh, god's own sacrifice of his son and the final complete atonement that it achieved for the sins of the whole world. To quote my favorite theologian, David Zoll, uh, from his magnificent article in the current issue of the Mockingbird magazine, which I think all of you have a copy of now, quote, the God who redeems the defeated and downtrodden and all those who cannot heal themselves, whose power operates outside the bounds of human possibility and subjectivity, the God who, we are told, is so for us that he is against himself. That leads me to the key question of this talk. What now? Let us provisionally accept that we have been rescued, that it is not our doing, that we have not paid the innkeeper from our own resources, but Jesus has paid him. And he will pay whatever is necessary to make sure we are whole and saved. And that he has given instructions to this, our guardian, the Holy Spirit, who is loyal and also good and Jesus will return and take us with him to glory. Let me put it to myself. What do I do now? Locked in the lazaretto of God's grace, broken, injured, 
perhaps suffering relapses of my symptoms or infections, making infinitesimal progress, or not making visible progress at all and watching my wounds fester and seethe. What do I do? Well, what else can I do? I stay put. I recover. I am safe, protected, and guarded. Sometimes, often perhaps, we try to sneak out the door, not because we are healthy, but because we want to return to the ditch, to lie there in agony awaiting death. We don't like being taken care of. Maybe we think the priest or the Levite will take a second look and see that once before we were healthy and wealthy, before we were robbed and beaten. Maybe psychologically we feel that's where we belong and we don't deserve to be in the lazaretto. I know I've had many of these thoughts and indeed still feel the pull of the ditch. But the lazaretto door is solid. Its lock is bolted. Our warden, the spirit, is true and headstrong. The Samaritan's money is good. It is valuable currency. The warden is bought outright and indeed greedy for the money of the Samaritan. We do not get out. We stay put. We let the wounds heal. We await the coming of our Savior. We know that his one purpose is to see us whole, and he will achieve that however much it costs. Let me say here one uh, final obvious point that some of you have no doubt guessed already. The word Lazaretto is derived from the name Lazarus. Lazarus in the Bible was a friend of Jesus who died and who in John 11 was buried. And when Jesus arrived, had been in the tomb for four days. But Jesus came anyway and raised him from absolute death by calling him out of his grave. Lazarus, come out, Jesus said. And the gospel continues. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with bandages, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The word Lazaretto therefore connotes a place where you are led when you are effectively dead, with no agency or life of your own, where you can only wait whether you are consciously aware of it or not, the Savior, the Good Samaritan, who is certain to return and call you out, even if it's longer than anyone expects. We are all, I venture to suggest, Lazaruses, and we all dwell in the Lazaretto. We were all effectively dead with no hope, yet the Good Samaritan rescued us from death, bound our mortal wounds, and has taken every necessary step to ensure that we will be alive and ready for him when he returns. Like Jack White, I sometimes long for someone to kidnap me, force me into the lazaretto, break my legs even, anything to keep me from hurting myself and those around me through sinful actions. But the Christian message is that you are there already. You were dead and you are now alive. You are still wounded, broken, but you are being healed. You may not see that progress. You may never see visible progress of your wounds in this life but you can be certain that you are provided for, taken care of, and certainly <laughs> saved. And no matter your own self-doubt, your longing, once in that lazaretto to return to the ditch, as the song says, I'm trying to escape any way that I can. No matter how much that affects you, delays your healing, proves a restriction that is too much to bear, you can't get out, you're stuck in the lazaretto. Another NPR interview uh, that is relevant here also conducted with an influential indie rock artist, <coughs> sensing a trend, what I spend my time doing. Uh, 
is on page it's on page four. Some of the Illuminati, and I commend you here present, may know the band Granddaddy, a band which has been on hiatus for ten years, but which is about to release another triumphant album. Their lead songwriter, Jason Lytle, was recently interviewed, and in the course of that interview, re revealed a lot about his struggles with his own self-destructive behavior. Remember, this is coming on the eve of Granddaddy's triumphant return to the public eye. Quote, I still have serious doubts. I'm still prone to self-sabotage. I'm just a little unstable. And I should probably go to therapy. <laughs> I should probably do a lot of things. Sometimes I have my stuff together and sometimes I don't. And it really blows my mind how big the gap is sometimes. <laughs> but I'm a little wiser because of years of watching these patterns. And there were a few periods in my life where I thought I might not even be getting older. Just let that sit there for a moment. Sure, but you hang in there long enough and you start figuring some things out. That's what he says. Lytle's almost throwaway equation here is fascinating to me. As we get older, we should get better. We should improve. We should stop self-sabotage, as he calls it, and stop destroying relationships around us. But he has experienced the opposite of that, and it has flummoxed him. What if we don't get better as we get older? What if we get worse? How do we explain that? To quote my favorite theologian again, this is, in no doubt, this is no doubt the ultimate downer. <laughs> At the center of this subject, theologically speaking, is the debated principle of sanctification, growing in holiness through the course of the Christian life. There are many passages in the Bible that suggest we should seek this out and even expect it from one another. I do not propose to go into that here, and in any case, it's almost certainly above my pay grade. I don't know. To be honest, based on my own experience, it's a hard doctrine for me to swallow. For me, and this is just a personal reflection, remember, I'm not wearing a collar, <laughs> sanctification is first and foremost about awakening to the fact that you're in the lazaretto. And yes, being okay with it. Recognizing, slowly learning through the means of grace in the church that it's where you're supposed to be. Coming to terms with the fact that you didn't check yourself into this hospital. The Good Samaritan did that for you. And uh, also, this is perhaps the more difficult part for many people. Coming to terms with the fact that any progress in your recovery is likely to be, quite honestly, self-deceptive. Your wounds have not healed as much as you think they have. And in fact, you may be relapsing and in need of some bed rest. Good Christians want to check themselves out of the Lazaretto. They show the warden their wounds and say, look, see, I'm all better. But the warden knows. And in any case, he's paid off. He won't let you out, no matter how good you look. Because ultimately, sanctification is really not about you. It's about the intentions and convictions of the Good Samaritan, about his fundamental and utter goodness. He is indeed the definition of good. He wants nothing to do with your faux temporary recovery. He wants you to be fully recovered. When he comes back, he wants to call you out like Lazarus, bound all over in medical gauze, and show the world that yes, indeed, he does raise dead people back to life. He is the one who does it, not us. He is the restorer and the healer, not us. 
And we should wait for him to make, uh, to make us perfect and whole again when we finally leave the Lazaretto to go be, be with him in eternity. Now, in closing, the burning question to me, which I'm not able to solve, is how do we deal with this situation in the church? Do we acquiesce to the mirage that we're not in the Lazaretto, that we haven't been brought here without any agency, without any agency of our own? Or do we subtly enable each other to believe in our own agency, that we can make ourselves well again? I think, unfortunately, the latter is often the case for many Christian communities. And I mean all communities. I'm not speaking about all souls. I'm speaking about the church as an institution writ large. Yes, we have the sacraments and the liturgy, and we dutifully observe them, and they do their job. They heal us, and they nourish us. Thank God for these indispensable medicines for the soul. But what about in our sermons, in our counseling, in our conversations? Do we subtly slip into denying that we're in the Lazaretto, all of us? Do we suggest to one another that we're not all struggling with sin, with the compounding bad problems of the world up until the last day of our life? Do we slip into a default religion of law rather than a religion of mercy? I would suggest that this might be the worst disservice we can do for each other as Christians. To once again quote my favorite theologian from his recent Mockingbird magazine article, I'm just saying that because he's going to laugh on the tape when he sees this. <laughs> That's for you, Dave. Quote, wonderful quote, though, wonderful quote. You might even say that when the church becomes yet another venue for comparison and expectation, even the expectations of quote-unquote radical community, most of the benefits it might provide by virtue of the relationships one forms there are negated. The ability to admit, I think, that we're all a little uncomfortable with an absence of health and an absence of agency is paradoxically very salutary. It actually helps in our healing. Do we expect people to get better over time and to heap guilt upon them when they fail, especially when they are not expected to fail? Do we heap guilt on them for relapses or for recovery that is not speedy enough? Sanctification for me, if it is anything, is first and foremost about resting in the hospice care that we've been brought to and helping others to do so too. The recognition that it is by absolute free and unrelenting grace that we are alive now, spiritually and physically, and will recover in the future, even the distant future, even only finally when we are able, when we are taken to glory by our Savior, is, I would suggest, the foundation of our faith in our church. And ultimately, this emphasis on grace and grace alone is the foundation because, simply, that is the work of Christ, the Good Samaritan. And thanks be to God, he has not left it as work for us to do. Thank you.